The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm not into Goldman Sachs. I don't care about Goldman Sachs. He's got perfect genes. He has incredible energy. Jobs, taxes, infrastructure, regulation. We're working on them all simultaneously. Well, uh, let me just tell you, since he got to the White House, he doesn't need KFC anymore and McDonald's. There is great food there. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who calls it a down payment when Congress refuses to appropriate any money for his border wall, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. On today's show, the president's love affair with Wall Street, or is it a hate affair? During his campaign, Trump railed against Goldman Sachs, which he said controlled his opponent, Hillary Clinton. He said big international banks like Goldman were plotting the destruction of U.S. sovereignty in order to enrich themselves. Then he gave the globalists from Goldman, Gary Cohn, Steve Mnuchin, Dina Powell, the keys to the car. The stock market as a whole remains pretty positive about Donald Trump, despite his recurring bouts of anti-Wall Street populism. Investors seem to have decided to ignore the president when he says he wants to break up the big banks but they still pay attention when he talks about deregulation and talks about gutting Dodd-Frank. So what's really going on here? My guest today is a shrewd observer of Wall Street who thinks the financial community's confidence in the new administration may be overstated. I'll be back to talk to Andrew Ross Sorkin about the state of the Trump trade right after we do the tweets. North Korea disrespected the wishes of China and its highly respected president when it launched, though unsuccessfully, a missile today. Bad. Lou Dobbs just stated that President Trump's successes are unmatched in recent presidential history. Thank you, Lou. President Andrew Jackson, who died 16 years before the Civil War started, saw it coming and was angry, would never have let it happen. The Democrats, without a leader, have become the party of obstruction. They are only interested in themselves and not in what's best for the U.S. The fake news media is officially out of control. They will do or say anything in order to get attention. Never been a time like this. Congratulations to Fox and Friends on its unbelievable ratings hike. My guest today is the New York Times financial columnist, Andrew Ross Sorkin. You may have seen him on CNBC's Squawk Box. You may have read his book, Too Big to Fail. You may have seen the Showtime drama, Billions, which he co-created. And if you haven't, you should do all of those things. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Love your show. Uh, Well, thank you. I've been wanting to have you on it because I'm still a little mystified by the Trump-Wall Street love affair, as I think you called it in a column a few weeks ago. You know, towards the end of the campaign, this guy was railing against Goldman Sachs in terms that I think a lot of people read as not only vicious, but even a little anti-Semitic. 
And then, you know, his administration is just filled with these people now and everybody's getting on famously. So what's the deal? I would uh, I take issue with the the idea that they're getting along famously. I think that the relationship between Wall Street and Washington or, or Wall Street and the Trump administration is a little bit more tenuous than it appears uh, in the media or on television or in articles, if you will, in terms of some of the commentary and comments that you hear from CEOs that oftentimes seem very positive about the president and the administration and perhaps the way they really feel when they're in the office, which is to say that I think that corporate America and Wall Street right now are projecting a great amount of confidence and positivity towards the administration. Part of that is real in that I think they do believe that they they, they want tax reform, they want less regulation, and all of that. But part of it is also out of fear. They all fear Donald Trump. They fear the tweet storm at 3 a.m. in the morning. They fear being called out. And so when people ask a CEO about what they're doing or how they feel about the administration, I think it's, it's colored through the, that lens. I mean, this happened again the other day, right, when Trump said something about maybe we should break up the big banks. You know, maybe we should bring back Glass-Steagall, which would, would have that effect. And it's totally contradictory to his other position on banking regulation, which is that there is too much of it and that Dodd-Frank should be reined in or rewritten or pulled back. And it's a bizarre contradiction. But haven't they just all learned, taken away the message that his fulmination doesn't really mean anything? It's sort of sound and fury and that they can safely ignore it? Well, the question is, how much can you ignore it? Uh, It's sort of you can ignore it at your peril. You know, just yesterday, Tim Cook announced that he was going to uh, invest a billion dollars in manufacturing in America that he wanted to give back. By the way, I commend him on that. You, you'd want all American companies to try to invest in America. But a lot of this, and I, I hate to be cynical about it, a lot of it is CEOs these days are trying to curry some form of favor with the administration, with Washington, in hopes that it helps them down the line when it comes to regulation, when it comes to some of these tax proposals, when it comes to getting a voice, a seat at the table. That's what this, I mean, I can't tell you when, when Trump first got into office and they were building that council, you know, you know, the council that um, is being led by Steve Schwartzman, every CEO, people would call me, they'd they'd ask, how can I get on the council? I want to get a seat at the table. What? And then you sort of could watch this sort of very strange dance taking place where all of these executives would come out and say these things in a large part, to try to desperately befriend the president in a very different way than I think you've probably ever seen with presidents. People always wanted to curry favor with power to get close to it. But this is sort of at a different level. I mean, so micro, you're currying favor with him. You want him to to have a good feeling about your company. And you can do that by saying you're going to increase manufacturing here. You're not going to ship jobs to Mexico, endorsing any of his policies, being on his council. And that helps you avoid being in the bullseye of a tweet storm when he's up in the middle of the night. But macro, they do really like these policies. And that's reflected in the run-up to the stock market, which must reflect the expectation that we're going to get a corporate tax cut. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to take a total issue with that. Okay. And I, I absolutely agree with you that that is the prevailing view, the conventional wisdom, call it what you will. What I think has actually happened in terms of what's happening in the stock market is it's no longer about the promises of Trump. I think that that the premium is no longer about that. 
which is to say that when he was first elected, I absolutely agree there was, some, there was what rightly was described as the Trump rally. Everybody bought into the idea that, you know, the Republicans owned the House, the Senate, the White House, and they were just, all of these policies were going to happen within the first hundred days, as you know, and I think the market moved on that. I think over time, something else happened that, frankly, the market didn't recognize or recognize well enough, which is to say that the economy actually improved, and um, not just uh, the economy in terms of growth, because some of the GDP numbers wouldn't reflect it, but profits, earnings of, of a lot of the big companies in America have been much, much better than people thought. And I would contend, and I say this hopefully apolitically, that these earnings were going to come anyway, meaning I don't think that what you've seen over the past quarter or two is a function of the election. I think it's a function of an economy that was starting to get its uh, sea legs together uh, over the summer and the fall. And clearly, in terms of the political climate, Donald Trump was, it was very successful in telling everybody that the sky was falling, and Hillary Clinton was very unsuccessful in telling people that things were better than they really appreciated. So you think the so-called Trump trade was a little bit of Trump trade, but really in a lot of ways a much more Obama, much more of an Obama trade in the sense that the policies of the past several years kicked in and, and produced a, a, a sound economy, and people are betting on that. I give him more credit than he gets. Clearly, the rest of the market didn't appreciate it at the time. But by the way, just look at how, and I, I did a column a week, or, a week ago with, where, I, where I interviewed Ben Bernanke, just where we talked about this issue. Just look at how Democrats and Republicans view the economy and how it's switched. It is, if you look at all of the polls, it has switched like on a dime. If you were a Republican in the fall, you thought that the world was terrible, the economy was a disaster, and we were going to hell in a handbasket. Democrats had a more positive view of where things were. If you look at the world today, Republicans think that we are, you know, on a, uh, a straight line rocket to the moon, and Democrats think that, you know, things are not nearly as good as that. Yes. Uh, but I mean, the, the, when you talk about, you know, how Wall Street people react to Trump, you know, you know, you know, so many of these people, I know far fewer of them, but they hate the kind of loose talk he engages in around the economy. They just recoil when he says the dollar should be weaker or when he jawbones the Fed. Or when, you know, he throws sort of comments around, market-moving comments in the casual, not sure if you should take it seriously kind of way. So how are they accommodating themselves to that? I mean, that just cuts against all their instincts. I think it does cut against all their instincts. And I think at the same time, they try to look past it and say to themselves and either rationalize or self-justify that Gary Cohn is his senior economic advisor, former president of Goldman Sachs. Will Barras is the Commerce Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin is the Treasury Secretary, and that when it comes to actual policy, the words may not translate on the page. But you're saying that having all these people around, and not just the Goldman Sachs people, um, but Wilbur Ross and other people who that Wall Street knows is sort of an insurance policy against Trump turning radical again or meaning any of the really radical things he says. I mean, if Trump got in trouble and wanted to go super populist and attack Goldman Sachs again, I mean, I guess he could do anything, but that would be so bizarre at this point. He'd be t attacking his own administration. Yes, you can think something is bizarre, and then he'll then say he something, did. and then <laughs> who knows? I, I don't know what 
he can, can or can't do or what he's capable of. I imagine that the market and the world of corporate America and Wall Street do look at those individuals and say, when it comes to business stuff, true business stuff, uh, there's a bit of an insurance policy there. And by the way, and to Gary Cohn's credit, and I would give it to him, you know, he was able in large part to convince Donald Trump to stop, you know, demagoguing the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen and tweeting about all of that and talking about China as a manipulator and all of that. So clearly they've had some success on those issues. What are you worried about Trump doing? I mean, uh, separate from whether he can pass a tax bill that has all sorts of bad ideas in it and, and blows up the deficit. I mean, I'm worried about the Fed. Right. I mean, he's changed his tone on Janet Yellen, possibly. But I'm still worried that he politicizes the Fed and that the Fed can't function as the independent arbiter that it has to to protect the economy. Well, I'm going to give you my prediction and then you can tell me what you think of it. My prediction, and I've been talking about this for a while now, is I think Gary Cohn is going to be the next Fed chair. Huh. So you tell me whether that is going to be considered politicizing the Fed or not. I imagine maybe. He's not an economist, although you should know there's actually a lot of people uh, who ran the Fed over the years. Paul Volcker was not an economist either. More recently, they've all been economists. But during the campaign, Trump was constantly trashing the Fed and constantly saying we need to raise interest rates. Once you get into the job and you realize that you want growth in the economy and you want jobs, you realize it's it's much harder to say that and to actually put into practice because it's just going to slow your economy down. So ultimately, I think you want somebody in that role, if you're him, who actually is very political. You actually, But oddly, you want a dove. You don't want a hawk. You want someone who's going to keep rates low. Right. And that's that's what I'm worried about. I mean, the, the risk is that, that you keep rates low and inflation comes back and the economy overheats and you and you produce a recession, which, depending on the timing in relation to the next election, you know, might or might not be his problem. But it's very interesting because a lot of the names that had been thrown out over the years, whether it be true conservatives like Glenn Hubbard or John Taylor or even Kevin Warsh, all of those folks who've written op-eds in The New York Times and The Journal and elsewhere would raise interest rates Incredibly, that would be uh, maybe the right thing to do, but it would be terrible for his economy. So I think it becomes very hard for him to actually back somebody like that. I mean, that's interesting about Gary Cohn. You know, be, being chairman of the Fed is not quite like being on the Supreme Court. I mean, there is there is a tradition of independence, and the, you're appointed for a term. The president can't fire you, but it's not a life term. You have to get reappointed, and you kind of have to take the president's calls. I mean, if you were if Gary Cohn became chairman of the Fed and Trump calls him up and yells at him, you know, Trump can't do that to the Supreme Court justices. Maybe he doesn't know he can't do that, but it's not going to have much effect. But with the Fed chairman. You know, they are vulnerable to some extent to political pressure. Well, to some extent, but I think that at the moment, Janet Yellen can basically do whatever she wants, don't you think? Yeah, but she's not going to get reappointed. You know, I, mean, I just think it's different if someone comes out of your administration. If he appoints right. Gary Cohn, I don't think Gary Cohn at that point says, oh, thank you very much, Mr. President. And by the way, we won't be speaking again except in a formal monthly meeting with witnesses. He's being appointed, he would be appointed because of the expectation that he would do Trump's bidding. And by the way, that may actually be the reason that he can't actually become the Fed chair, which is to say it is a job uh, that does have to get approved. So he would, he, would, he would go through a whole series of these uh, 
confirmation hearings. Yeah. I mean, another um, the thing we didn't talk about was infrastructure. I mean, Wall Street generally likes the idea of the government spending a lot of money on infrastructure. Uh, yesterday, the day before, he threw out an idea, which I got to say is the first idea he's he's had that I sort of liked or agreed with. But he said we should raise the gas tax to pay for infrastructure. I mean, that goes beyond traditional republicanism towards a kind of uh, good government cent- centrism. That's the kind of policy Democrats support. Uh, absolutely. But don't you think that after he said it, somebody came into the office and said, you probably shouldn't have said that? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that I think is probably so. I feel like he has these tendencies, which are, oddly enough, they're, they're more, they may even be more down the middle than we think. But then I, I imagine he gets back to his desk and then you have, you know, Gary Cohn on one side and Steve Bannon on the other. On, you know, it's almost like these, these, two, these two guys sitting on his shoulders whispering or screaming at him about how to think. Yes, and which is the uh, devil and which is the angel. But, the you know, I think that <laughs> this uh, split between the kind of royalists and nationalists in the administration, if that's going on, it certainly looks like the royalists are winning. I mean, the nationalists represented by Peter Navarro, uh, the trade representative, and by Steve Bannon, but they don't have any victories really on their side. They have some rhetoric on their side, but the victories all seem to be with the Goldman Sachs people. I think that seems to be the way that this is headed. And by the way, we haven't mentioned two other people in this who are not true Wall Streeters, but maybe they are, which is to say Jared Kushner and the influence of Ivanka Trump. And by the way, the influence of Dina Powell, former Goldman Sachs, uh, but also uh, formerly of the State Department. She worked under Bush. But clearly that whole contingent has played against Steve Bannon and Miller in terms of those, na- those sort of nationalist tendencies that started the presidency. Yeah, I, and with on the side of Gary Cohn, I agree with you. So do you think that the, the nationalists are going to have fight another day? I mean, has this battle essentially been won by a more traditional kind of republicanism, to be clear? You know, is, it, is, the, is the sort of Bannon populist moment that elected Trump is that over? Does it come back with the next election? I mean, what's the, you know, what's the future of, of opposition to globalism, to pulling out of trade agreements? I mean, Trump, it was unbelievable. I mean, he went into this meeting saying he was going to pull out of NAFTA and said that he was asked nicely, so he agreed not to. I think it really depends on if all of this works and also what the measure is. It's one thing for the stock market to be higher and for people on Wall Street to be happy and excited. It's quite another for a lot of his base and whether they're going to have jobs and whether manufacturing really is going to come back, which as you probably can imagine, I am skeptical about. And so at some point, either you could see him pivot back towards more of sort of some of the Steve Bannon language if he thinks he needs to, or you could see another candidate. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody ultimately runs against him and go, it runs against him even farther on the right. If if this policies if these policies if you will don't seem like they're working. All right, I've been speaking to New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the show. It's great talking to you. A lot of fun. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
Lou Dobbs said President Trump's successes are unmatched in recent presidential history. It's true. It's true. I've done a tremendous job. I just keep winning. But let's do it by the numbers. One hundred days, 19 rounds of golf, 30 executive orders, 59 Tomahawk missiles, one beautiful chocolate cake, and four wonderful children. Well, I'm not counting Tiffany. 